All right, let me pray for us. God, I thank you for each person here. Thank you for the way you rearranged their day, rearranged their world, and brought them to this moment. God, there's so much potential in a moment, particularly when you're involved. So, God, would you just meet us here? Would you just help us to be more aware of your presence? Uh, surrender to ourselves so we can see more of you. God, would you hold our hands and walk us through the scriptures? Help us to see what you would have us see. But God, I pray most of all that we leave here tonight a little bit more like Jesus. That we leave here committed to applying the word and not just learning it. So we love you. We thank you. Can't wait to see what you're going to do tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we have a bunch of, well, several new people. So um, let me just give you my one-minute spiel. Um, I grew up in a church. My dad was a deacon. My mom was a church secretary hostess kind of person. Um, and so I was at church pretty much every day, it seemed like, in my life up until I was about 18. And when I was 18, I decided I didn't need to go to church anymore because I decided I could be a better God than the God that was telling me I couldn't do things. So um, I basically walked away. And the main reason I walked away were two things. One uh, was um, I had a lot of questions and I really wanted answers. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I just really wanted answers. Um, and in the church I was going to, not only did they not have answers, they implied that I shouldn't be asking the questions. And so I thought, okay, well, you don't really have answers. And so I walked away from God for about 16 years. And then through a long story, um, God brought me back. But I committed to God that if I came back, I was going to be all in. That uh, I wouldn't want to be one of those people that, which is the second reason I left the church, who said one thing and did another. I, I was like, if I'm committed to you, I want to be all in. And so over the last 30 years or so, I've been involved in homeless ministry. My wife and I run the Remnant Cafe here. And I'm the lead pastor here and uh, have been a lead pastor now for 13 years, I think. I was um, lead pastor at South Shore for, I don't know, nine years. And then I've been here at Remnant for about five. Um, and um, Daniel said he had a group of friends that would like to meet and talk. Um, and I said, great, who do you have to lead that? And he said, well, you. And I said, well, I'm an old man. Uh, you know, what could I possibly add? But, but I think looking back, I wish I'd had that opportunity. So every other Thursday we meet, and uh, so far we just sort of talked about questions and, and things that you wanted to know. And um, I thought I'd start out tonight because I think there's a topic that um, probably would get us started on some discussion. Yes, sir. Quick announcement. I forgot to mention, I do have coffee. I don't know how warm it is still, but there's coffee on the table with cream yeah. and sugar. Creamer. It's coffee in the dark. If anyone wants it. Yeah. Um, question I want to put on the table tonight, and I want y'all to help me figure this out, is um, would Jesus be a Republican or a Democrat? Oh. <laughs> yep, that's where we're going. Get yourself ready. Don't get too close to the fire. All right, seriously though, would Jesus be a Republican or a Democrat? Then why? And how would we decide such a thing? So what are your initial thoughts? There's no wrong answers here, by the way, so. Neither. Neither? We have a neither? Okay. Other thoughts? I would say neither also. Neither? Okay. Well, this is going to be a short night. Um, okay, so um, why do you say neither? Why would you say that? Think of like when um, uh, 
Jesus asked uh, Peter, like, who do you say I am? And, um, and he had this idea of like, uh, this idea that Jesus would be like, you know, conquer the Roman Romans and like be this big, um, uh, like the Messiah would be, you know, coming on a high horse and be yep. this big um, political leader and just like have like this earthly kingdom thing, which right. and uh, of course uh, his kingdom's upside down and um, right. not of this world and and it's not okay. involved in um, the politics of this world so much bigger and better than that. Okay, so as Christians, should we not be involved in politics? What do you think? Anybody can say anything. Okay, more inclined on bringing people together rather than separating them, right? Okay. All right. Like being a Christian first before anything else, of course. Okay, all right. What kind of world did Jesus grow up in? Let me just give you sort of some background that I think helps sort of explain this. First of all, the... Uh, the easy way out of this is Jesus was uh, Jewish. He'd probably be in Israel, not in the United States, and he wouldn't be either. Um, but uh, one of the problems that I think uh, our country has, and we'll talk a lot about our country tonight and politics and the role of Christians in politics and all those kind of things. And uh, I'm just going to share with you my thoughts. You're welcome to disagree or whatever. But um, when the Roman Empire... Um, was horribly, horribly oppressive. Um, we downplay it in the Bible, I think, because it looks like, you know, they're Roman guards and they're just kind of hanging out and they may ask you to carry your coat for a mile or whatever. And um, But the Roman Empire was brutal. Um, they were um, horrible. Uh, almost every kind of atrocity you can think of, the Roman Empire was involved in. And they occupied all of the Holy Land, and they held Jewish people in particular disregard. Um, the Jewish people were allowed to go to the temple and worship, but that was about it. Uh, there was really, uh, as long as they didn't cause a disturbance, as long as they didn't cause a problem, as long as they paid their taxes, as long as they did the things they were supposed to do, then they could live, um, And uh, um, but they lived under horrible oppression. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, one of the um, emperors uh, of Rome got really mad at a city that was just southwest of Nazareth um, because they had not fully paid their taxes. And he took the people, that Jesus would have been about 16 when it happened. He took the people that hadn't paid their taxes and he crucified one every quarter mile for 22 miles. Okay, picture that. 88 people. Uh, crucified in one or two days. Okay, they tortured people routinely. The taxes were horribly oppressive. Uh, they enslaved people. They beat people. They mistreated people. Um, they gave total disregard for lives that weren't Roman citizens. In the Bible, it talks about how Paul could claim or or, or demand to go to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. We don't understand what that really means. Uh, that really means you have a right to actually live in a whole different stratosphere than everybody else. Okay, the Jewish people <coughs> were under slavery in Egypt, but they were darn close to it under uh, Rome. And uh, Jesus came into the world at that moment. 
and he had a great opportunity to get really involved in politics. Um, he had a great opportunity to set what was wrong right, because there were clearly things going on in the Roman Empire that were horrible, that violated God's law, violated God's moral law, uh, the things they were doing sexually with children, the things that they were doing uh, just in their lives, the way they were worshiping goddesses uh, at different temples. I mean, we read the Bible and we almost sanitize it, but the reality is, uh, to give you an example, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus decides to take his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And uh, the scriptures just say, Jesus decided to go to Caesarea Philippi, and they start walking to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a place of pagan sexual uh, worship. Um, it was an oasis. There were there's a water pool there, and there are these cliffs that go up, and the um, spiritual prostitutes would meet there, and um, it was basically a 24/7 orgy, uh, worshiping the fertility goddess. Okay, now Jesus tells his disciples they're going to Caesarea Philippi, and they're like, "Excuse me, what? Where are we going?" Because no prophet, no rabbi would go anywhere near there. That was some of the most unholy place you could take people. And yet Jesus took his disciples there. And when he gets there, he says, who do you say I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're those. And, it, and all the time, the background of this is an orgy. Okay, so I mean, the background of this is an orgy. He's standing there asking his disciples, who do they say that I am? Finally, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he turns to them and he basically cries out that that's the truth and the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, no matter how bad this is, it will never prevail against me. And so one of the things Jesus was really incredible at was using what was around him to teach. But he never used the political issues as teaching fodder. He never really even discussed them. I mean, you would expect him growing up in the Roman Empire as an oppressed Jewish man, that the red letters would be full of, it's wrong to do this, it's wrong to do that, I gotta stand for God on this, I gotta stand for God on that, but you don't read it. You don't, you don't see that, and yet you would think you would. In fact, it's surprising, uh, almost to the point of having a point, that he never really addresses what's obviously a very oppressive government. They oppress women, they oppress children, um, and he walked among the people and there were horrible things going on, okay? Now, um, when you think about him, the only real political statement he ever made was give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And so we have to ask the question, why didn't it bother him? Or if it did bother him, why didn't he make it his agenda? What was it? about Jesus that made him not even speak about slavery other than to obey your master. Uh, masters, uh, treat your slaves well. Uh, he didn't talk about the oppression of women, which was incredible, uh, particularly since he had women in his ministry and had women uh, involved in all kinds of things with him. He didn't talk necessarily about the poor other than the poor you'll have with you. He didn't say, that, you know, basically we need to open up a program. Uh, he didn't really talk about um, many, many people who were sick and ill who he did not heal. Um, you know, at the Pool of Bethesda, he only healed one person. He walked over probably a hundred to get there. Uh, but the things that were going on 
never ever really seemed to impact him. Uh, even when he had a chance, at one point they thought he was, you know, they wanted to make him king and he ran away, disappeared because he didn't want that. That wasn't why he was here. And you're right. He, he says very clearly, my kingdom's not of this world. He told Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. Okay, but I want to take you back uh, and help you understand a little bit about why this wasn't important to him or why I believe it wasn't important to him. God had led the Israelites uh, through Joshua uh, to the promised land. And he basically said, I'll be your God, you be my people. I'm paraphrasing. And he said, um, obey my commands and I'll be with you. Okay, well, they didn't really do that. Um, and at one point, the prophet Samuel um, was told, or told God or interacted with God about the fact that the people want a king. And God said, well, people aren't designed to lead other people. I mean, if you think about it, the problem with mankind is we really aren't set up to lead other people. Okay, We don't do it well. Conflicts come from people trying to take authority positions over other people. Uh, and in many ways, we don't do it real well. So there's a passage where, and I'm going to read it to you. There's a passage where he tries to warn them of what's going to happen if they settle for an earthly king or an earthly government instead of God as king, okay? And what he says is, so this is 1 Samuel 8, 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, there will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow the ground and reap the harvest and make implements of war and equip the chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to the officers. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and donkeys. He'll put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks. You will be his slaves. And on that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Okay? So what happens is they decide they want to lead themselves. They want a king like everybody else has. And God had specifically told them, look, that's not how this is set up. I'm your God. I'm your king. You need nobody other than me. But instead they basically began to lead themselves and demand to do that. And from that point forward, no government has succeeded, just as God said they wouldn't, okay? The Egyptians, the, um, uh, let's see, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greece, Greeks, the Romans, um, and eventually the uh, empire of the Antichrist, none of them succeed because men can't lead the way God leads. God says you can't serve man and an idol. You can't serve God and an idol. And as a result, you're going to choose one over the other. Every leader that is put over people becomes jealous of people's gods or God. And it begins to cause oppression for them because you're going to worship something. And you're either going to worship your government or you're going to worship God first. And so if you look throughout history, the fall of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greece, 
uh, and the Romans all came about because the people um, had to begin to choose between their God and the government. Okay, so Jesus, when he comes to earth, is like, okay, you have a government led by men. It's destined to fail. We told you it was going to fail way back with the prophet Samuel. There's no reason to be overwhelmingly engaged in politics or in political fixing for something that is failing that's going to fail. Um, we need to be more about the kingdom that we belong to. So Jesus was very clear that we are all citizens of another kingdom. Okay, we're, we're from a higher place. We've been surrendered to Christ. This is not our world. We're visitors here. I talk about it all the time that we start off as humans trying to have a spiritual experience. But once we meet Jesus, we become spiritual beings having a human experience. And so Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. In other words, all kingdoms led by people are going to fail. I'm not here to fix that. That's not what I'm here. I'm here to teach you how to live in the kingdom that I want to take you to. Okay, so I agree with you. I think Jesus would not get involved in politics at all. Yet, you look at Facebook, you look at Twitter, you look at all these things, and there's people out there acting like they have to defend God with politics. And I think Jesus would be like, shut up. Just shut up. Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't really ask us to defend him. I think a lot of people look at politics as if we need to defend God somehow, that we need to show how righteous we are, and we need to stand on the right things. And so right now, if you ask many people, uh, is he Republican or Democrat? They go, oh, well, he's clearly Republican. He's conservative. And then you ask them why. Well, he's against abortion and, uh, you know, sexual identity and all that sort of stuff. And uh, so, yeah, clearly, he, I mean, you couldn't be a Christian and be a Democrat. And then you see people arguing back and forth as if the person that disagrees with them is the enemy. And they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy, but they're not the enemy. Okay. I mean, so what we have to remember is I think what Jesus would be most involved in is how much did you care about the person that disagreed with you? Did you love them? Did you berate them? Do you allow them to be who they are and where they are? Or have you already judged them and crucified them? Because what I see in a lot of discussions about politics, particularly on the conservative Christian side, is absolute total intolerance to an opposing view. And yet, if you look at the things Jesus stood for, many of them are on the Democratic platform. Taking care of the poor, redistributing wealth, taking care of the nation, making sure that we care for the planet that we've been given making sure that we see the people that are overseen, make sure that we don't uh, live our lives at the expense of other people, making sure that we don't manipulate people. Okay? On the Republican side, you could say the abortion issue or sexual identity. God was pretty clear. He made them male and female. There wasn't much of a question. Uh, he says that marriage is between a man and a woman, um, and everything else is an abomination. So there's plenty of, of fodder on each side of the equation for Republican or Democrat. And I think Jesus would say, pick one, I don't care. Because whoever you put in office, I've already decided I'm going to turn his heart. The, the scriptures say that God turns the heart of the king. So it's already, he, he's going to do whatever he or she is going to do as God directs them to do for the purposes that God has. Okay. Now, it gets into the question. Um, uh, I hear people all the time tell me, well, God's going to bless America. 
And I'm like, really? Why? Well, he's going to bless America. We're, we're a Christian nation. Really? Since when? Um, because the God I know can't bless America at all. Okay, if you look through Scripture, every time a nation turned their back on God and began to do things the pagan gods demanded, God had to bring in punishment and most of the time wiped out the entire government. Okay, so you look at things like um, um, our nation in general, just uh, the way we marginalize people, the way we don't care for each other, the way we argue with each other, the way we... I mean, we're so divided right now um, on issues that really aren't even critical issues for the most part. We, we, we end up in this division, hating, ridiculing, challenging, and Jesus, I think, would just go, what are y'all doing? Particularly as Christians, we should be the most open to views that disagree with us. We should be the most open to protect people's rights to speak, even if we disagree with them. We should be the most guarded about attacking somebody personally just because we disagree with some position they have. We're the ones that are supposed to be setting the example. We're the ones that are going to be going, you know what? I love you no matter what you say, no matter what you do. I'm going to pray for you no matter what you say and what you do. And I'm not going to attack you for what you believe in. Because just hear this, you can't expect non-believers to act like believers. And that may be a newsflash, but many times we expect people who don't know Jesus to act like they do. And we're never going to reach them with judgment and ridicule and attacking them. We're going to reach them by loving them and caring for them and finding common ground, as you said earlier. I mean, the key to this whole thing, and your generation in particular, is learning to allow people to disagree with you and still love them, even if they never agree with you. Okay, it's interesting to me. I work, uh, I'm bivocational, so I'm a pastor and a doctor. And I work with non-believers all day long. And yeah, we probably totally disagree on many issues. But they're great people. They're wonderful people. They, they don't know Jesus the way I wish they did. But man, there's some incredible people. And some of them believe things that are just so not God. I almost have to laugh because it's funny, sort of except they really believe it because no one's told them about God. They haven't learned to surrender. So what bothers me, and I, I haven't been on social media in five or 10 years because I don't like the way Christians attack people that disagree with them. We should be the best at loving people no matter what, okay? So let's talk about that for a minute because I think Jesus would look at our nation and say, you know what, of course it's failed, it's gonna fail. Every human endeavor to rule the world is going to fail. That's what Revelation's all about. I'm teaching on it every Sunday. It's, that's what it's about. What I care about is how you interact with each other. Do you really love people? Do you show them love or are you screaming at them? Uh, I watched a video where uh, Christians were screaming at women going in for abortions, calling them all kinds of names, horrible names. Uh, in the name of God. And, and I just wonder, what would Jesus do? I mean, it was horrible. Uh, and so, what do you think about the way people are interacting, and particularly in your generation? Because 
my generation, I'm 62 years old, um, and I grew up at the end of the Vietnam era. And one of the things that was ingrained in us is in a democracy, you have a right to say anything you want to say. And I have an obligation to defend your right to say it because that's what democracy is about. It's about everybody expressing their views, people disagreeing but finding common ground, and learning to appreciate other people's perceptions. Um, the generation ahead of you, just a little bit ahead of you, is very much into if you don't agree with me, I can't even talk to you, and I'm going to attack you personally if I can't get you to agree with me. Uh, and it's very, um, it's, it's very concerning because it's really not a place for common ground. And your generation's the generation that gets to change it. So what's been your experience with people of different political persuasions in and out of the church? It's polarizing. Polarizing. Um, like I think as time has passed, like it just seems like every 10 minutes we're progressively like right when you think we can't be any we can't be any more divided like we get more divided okay um like i feel like you know as a whole like people can't even can't even look at that other point of view like it just seems like so messed up and so wrong and um i think like the like what you said the biggest part of like expecting expecting non-christians to act like christians um People, people who don't know Jesus act like they know Jesus. Like, um, it seems like the root of the issue on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think, and as things have been, I'm sure the enemy loves it because, like, you know, and as the issues stream, um, seem to ever intensify, there's mm -hmm. some really, you know, nasty stuff right now. I mean, um, from the propaganda on the, you know, on our phones and social media and TV and you know the the enemy just like you know it used to be uh, it just seems like the enemy is just like 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 you know, the open the open um, worship of the devil on live TV like like you know with mm -hmm. I thought that I saw it I heard I, I saw bits and pieces and heard about it you know with you know, some of the word shows that like literally like it's up front and center like, yep. like there's no hiding anymore um, right and I think that feeds into everything on both sides because you got people with confirmation bias people only staying and, and watching the you know programs they want to watch to you know um, to fill what they want to watch and the confirmation bias so they can watch what they want to watch to support their own opinion they already have and make it stronger um, and yeah I think I think like you know, the Christianity like um, just recognizing these it's all gonna fail like all that earthly crap is so temporal uh, and focusing more on the Lord's kingdom and um, mission of God mm -hmm. like I heard one thing really cool like the, like the Missio Dei and the, um, the Missio Dei. so like if I heard a really cool thing that said like if you can't see the image of God in people then you'll never be a part of the mission of God mm -hmm. um, and like like first and foremost like before affiliating and before being so absorbed in a side of political party, like like you said, like really recognizing that it's going to fail and seeing the bigger picture of what God's doing. Okay, others, what do you think? Others, what do you think? Can you repeat 
Yeah, the question I asked was basically, um, how do you perceive um, in your world, the people you interact with, the people that you come across, um, how do we handle division? How do we handle people that disagree? And what do you think is the best position or the best thing a Christian can do in a world that's polarized? What do you think? I honestly think it requires a very gentle approach because I think one reason why the issues that we have now are so polarizing mm-hmm. because like my mom, she, would, she used to say like when she was a kid or even like when she was a teenager or in college, like, you know, you could disagree with someone mm-hmm. and still be friends with them. Absolutely. But now in, it's because there was something, I mean, we don't really have this nowadays, unfortunately, but like back then it was like, you know, we were all Americans mm-hmm. and like, you know, it didn't matter which party you were on, you were united by the fact that you were both Americans. So right. Like, you know, but nowadays we make these political parties and these issues like such a core central part of our identity uh-huh. that when you disagree with someone on it, it's like you're disagreeing with their existence. Yep. And so I think, I mean, in order to have a dialogue with someone, um, you just have to be so gentle in the way that you approach it. And it's hard for us as Christians because, I mean, you obviously can't water down the gospel mm-hmm. or what the Bible says. And there are, I mean, it's the Bible, the Bible's very definite, like, right. on things. Like, you know, sure. like you said, like, you know, about like the sexuality stuff or about mm-hmm. the abortion stuff. It's like, right. those are like, or identity level issues for something. Hey guys. And when you go and you're like, well, the book that I live my life by says that that's right. wrong. It's like you're attacking that. Yep. So, so how do we deal with that? What, what, what's a way of looking at that? Um, for example, um, when I meet people that don't know God, most of them know I'm a pastor. Most of them know I'm a spiritual man, whatever you want to call that. They all have their own names for it. Um, some of the nurses call me preach. Um, and they may not even, they, you know, they may not have a relationship with God, but they know that I do. Okay. And um, one of the things that I think it reflects is just how insecure people are in who they are. Okay. Let me, let me explain that because if, I, if I'm a TV repairman and I go to your house and I don't fix your TV well, um, you'll call me and I'll try again and maybe I'll fix it, but I don't feel like I failed as a human, okay? In other words, my kids still love me, my dog still loves me, I still think I'm a pretty good guy, I just didn't fix your TV, okay? But a lot of people are so insecure that everything they do represents who they are. And so when you challenge their ability to do something, you're not challenging the ability to do it. You're challenging them at their core of whether they're valuable or not. And so what happens is they are in a very fragile place, and that's why gentleness is important. What I tell people is, um, like I met somebody at a restaurant the other day, a waitress, and um, I said, you should come to our church. I think we'd love to have you. And she goes, well, I'm a Buddhist. I said, great, come on down. and she said, you, you want a Buddhist at your church? And I said, look, you just let me introduce you to Jesus and you can figure the whole thing out. Because that's really all that our job is. Our job 
is to just get people to Jesus and let Him change them. We've never converted a person our entire lives. Holy Spirit does that. We don't do that. In fact, we're not even told to defend or explain the Bible to people. Okay? Jesus didn't say, go therefore and explain all apologetics uh, to everybody who asks questions. We weren't even told to do that. What we were told to do was to be a witness. Okay? And I've talked about this before in this group. Um, if you're a witness, all you can testify to is what you've seen and experienced in your life. Okay? So a lot of people will go, well, I can't talk to you about God because I can't explain dinosaurs or I can't explain how old the earth is or I can't explain creation or I can't explain Noah's Ark, whatever it is. And that's not what you're asked to do. What you're asked to do is to be a witness to what Jesus has done in your life. That's the only place there's any power. Testimony is what's powerful. So what I tell people is, you know, they'll ask me and I'll tell them, you know, my story in about two minutes, and I'll tell them, look, I, this is who I was before I knew Jesus, this is what happened when I knew Jesus, and now I'm a completely different person, and I didn't do it. It happened to me. It's like, it's crazy. And I know it's hard to believe, but I want that for you. And so come to church, come to learn about Jesus. Let Him figure it out, okay? Because if you fall in love with Jesus, all these other things are going to fall in line, okay? If you have... Uh, tendencies or sexual confusion or any of those things, uh, God will figure that out for you. But you need Jesus. Okay, I mean, if you're, uh, let's say you have friends that are homosexuals, they don't need to stop sleeping with each other, although they do. They need Jesus. That's the most important thing. If they have Jesus, then God will make them a new person, just like he made you and me a new person. And the things I used to do, I don't do anymore. And he can change them. We can't change them. So one of the things we have to realize is that people who are non-believers are not the enemy. People who uh, are very liberal are not the enemy. People who are walking down the street in gay parades are not the enemy. They're victims of our enemy. Our enemy is Satan. They've been deceived, they've been lied to, they've been confused about who they are, they've doubted who God created them to be, they haven't been reaffirmed by God, they, they don't understand the things that God has done for them, and they are literally victims of a spiritual war that they don't even know is going on. And so they come to churches and they come to us and they're like, look, I, I'm, something's missing, I don't know what it is, but something's missing. Do you know what's missing? And I, I tell our church all the time, when I think of our church, I picture refugees from a war coming up the hill asking, is there a place for me? Because most of the people that we treat in our homeless ministry have been shattered by the attacks of Satan on their lives. Okay, they, they literally have been shattered. Uh, Many of them have been sexually abused from a young age. They were substance abuse issues. They had parents that didn't love them. They were on the streets when they were 13. They've been selling their bodies for five years. Uh, you know, just all kinds of things um, that would just break your heart when you hear them. And what you realize is they're victims. Jesus looked out over the crowd and he said that they thought they were, he had compassion on them because they appeared helpless or uh, they were. Um, he had compassion on them because they were 
harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, that's how we should see everybody who's not a believer. So uh, he looked at the crowd and he said, look, they're helpless. They're harassed. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, when you see people who don't know Jesus, remind yourself they don't know Jesus. Sounds really simple. And I'm not going to judge them for that because I know there was a time when I didn't know Jesus. And fortunately, somebody came to me and told me about him. Okay, so when we look at this political divide, we look at people who disagree with us. We look at people that have absolutely crazy ideas that offend God. Okay, the main thing that offends God is somebody rejecting Christ. And Paul says, how are they going to know if we don't go tell them? So step one, in my opinion, is that we need to start loving and embracing people who disagree with us. The one thing they should say when they leave us is, wow, I don't agree with them, but God, they sure love me. They care about me. Okay, I'll give you an example. When I was relatively far from God, uh, I had a nurse practitioner who was a believer. And something happened in our office. We were all young, about the same age, and uh, she just had this sense of peace. And I couldn't believe it. It wasn't like she was immune to what was happening. She was very well aware of what was happening. But she had peace. I could see it in her. She had this peace of somehow this is going to be okay. And I remember looking at her thinking, I want that. <coughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know how she does it. <coughs> She's not crazy. She's not in denial. But she has a sense of peace that is just incredible. And I didn't realize it at the time. I was seeing Jesus in her. And, and I had to ask her eventually. And she said, well, it's Jesus. And I was like, oh, I didn't want it to be Jesus. I want it to be something else. Um, and so what happened was she began to tell me about this peace that she found in Christ. I didn't need to know about dinosaurs. I didn't need to know about, you know, how to interpret theologically the things I know how to interpret now. I just need to know about Jesus and what he did in her life. And then she said he could do it in mine too. Okay, and so a lot of times we look at people who are different than us, the very people Jesus told us to go see and to go interact with and to love, and instead we push them off, stiff arm them, and judge them while we yell at them. And what bothers me a lot is it's the church that seems to be, in many cases, driving division. Um, now one of the things you don't know is that, uh, maybe you don't, is um, uh, one of my hobbies is Civil War stuff, okay? I don't dress up and do all that stuff, but my focus that I've spent the last 20 years on is reading sermons and studying the spiritual aspect of the Civil War. So looking at like what did the Southern pastors teach their congregations and what did the Northern pastors teach theirs? Because one of the things that always amazed me about that war was that... Um, both sides were convinced they were fighting for God. They all thought they were on a holy crusade. And they each claimed that God was on their side while they basically slaughtered each other. And the pastors played a key role in setting the tone of belief for the people. And so it's important to realize that um, we live in a very fractured, very um, volatile nation right now. I don't think I've ever seen it. I grew up in the 60s with the riots and all that stuff. And when I was in middle school, we had the National Guard at our school and police dogs and all kinds of crazy stuff. But it's very fractured right now. 
And the reason I believe it's fractured is God's people are not acting like God's people. We're not sharing the love we have. We're not reaching out to people who aren't like us. Okay, now I'll be the first to tell you that your closest people in your life have to have the Holy Spirit in them, and that's where you go to seek your wisdom. But that doesn't mean that you become frozen chosen behind stained glass. Okay, we were given a light to go shine it in darkness. We're supposed to be interacting with people that don't know Christ and not judging them and belittling them and slamming the Bible at them, but loving them and witnessing to them about what we've experienced and letting the Holy Spirit do the difference. Okay. Uh, how many of you are um, pretty familiar with what I would call the extreme right Christian propaganda? You see it? Okay. Um, how many are familiar with the extreme left propaganda? Very familiar, right? There's a battle over what to teach, what children should know, what they should do. And there's also a very strong battle to remove God from our country, from everything. Okay? That's offensive to all of us, right? Um, however, we have to understand from their perspective, pushing God's values and beliefs on them without first developing relationship is offensive to them too. So let me give you an example. One of the things that is true, I think, universally, it seems, is that relationships precede rules, okay? If you are going to give rules to somebody that you expect them to follow, you better have a relationship of some kind with them, okay? Think about this, you're walking down the street, somebody comes up to you and starts telling you what to do, right? And your first thought is, who are you to tell me what to do? In other words, we don't have a relationship. We, we don't have any kind of relationship established for you to tell me anything. Okay, I don't know who you are. I don't know your motive. I don't know what, what this is about. Okay, And so I'm going to be very guarded and I'm probably not going to do what you ask me or tell me to do unless you're wearing a police uniform or have a gun in my face or something. But for most people, relationships have to precede rules. Okay, We are in the relationship building mode of evangelism. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay. If you look at um, um, the Ten Commandments, okay, uh, and I'm repeating for some of you, but what's, what's the first line of the Ten Commandments? Anybody know? I'll give you a hint. It's not the first commandment. It says, I am the Lord your God, therefore. Okay? What God does before he gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments is he establishes the relationship. I'm the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt, that led you through this, that brought you to Mount Sinai. I'm the Lord your God. Because of that, here are the rules. Okay? Here's the Ten Commandments. If he's not the Lord your God, those aren't your commandments. Okay? And yet we try all the time to push those commandments down the throat of people who don't have any relationship with God at all and barely have a relationship with us. Okay? So if we want to change people, if we want to influence people, um, most people who come to Christ, and I apologize for repeating this, but most people who come to Christ, it's a combination of three things. A mess, the messenger, and the message. If you ask most people, what brought you to Christ? Okay? Something happened in their lives. 
where God got their attention, the mess. They knew the message or all of a sudden the Bible or the thought of Jesus makes some sense to them. That's the Holy Spirit moving in their heart. And then God sends a messenger. Someone who can witness to them. Somebody who can develop a relationship with them. Somebody that can share with them. Okay. And those three things all of a sudden come together and somebody becomes open to the Spirit and the Holy Spirit works in their heart to bring them to Christ. Okay. And so, if you think about it, the entire story of the Bible, from beginning to end, is God saying, I want a relationship with you. I don't want you to just know about me. I don't want you to just know me as some God. I want a relationship with you. I am Emmanuel. I'm God with you. I'm going to have a tabernacle set up, and I'm going to live among you. I'm going to move into your neighborhood. And we're going to follow ourselves around. And then one day I'm going to be in the Holy of Holies. And then one day I'm going to come to earth and I'm going to set things right. I'm going to break the Holy of Holies and I'm going to be your God and you'll be my people. And then one day we'll fix this whole thing and it'll all work out and all sin will be done and I'll wipe every tear and all those things. The story is I want to be in relationship with you. We worship a relational God and everything flows out of that relationship. Okay. Jesus himself said, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you'll find me, but you don't. Because he's not found in the scriptures with your head. He's found in the scriptures with your heart. Jeremiah, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. Okay, too many people that we know are trying to find God with their head. And we've got to get them to understand the pursuit of their heart. And what connects their heart is our relationship with them. Okay, so... If we look at people who disagree with us, we look at people who live a lifestyle that God calls sinful or a, a, a perversion, whatever. Okay, we know that. But there's not a person that you meet that Jesus didn't die for. There's nobody you meet that is too far from God's grace. There's not a single person you've ever locked eyes on that God has given up on, and yet many Christians have. And I, we treat uh, or see... Um, Somewhere between 100 to 150 homeless people every day at the cafe. Showers, food, Bible study, church services, all that kind of stuff. Um, and there's not a single person that I meet in that ministry that God has walked away from. And most people at their core, when they're alone, okay, when they're not, not putting up a brave face, just alone with their thoughts and God if he exists from their perspective they just want to know do they belong could they belong every person has a spiritual need to connect with their creator okay think about this all the civilizations over all the world they all have a God of some sort why because every human recognizes what's missing is the spiritual part of my life okay they seek it in all kinds of places but what's missing is the spiritual part of their life. So our job as believers is to go into a world of non-believers and develop relationships with them in love and to create a bond so that then we have the leverage to share the reason why we have the hope that we have. Okay, so for instance, I don't, I mean, I'm a pastor and people know it, but I don't go to the hospital or I don't meet a patient and just instantly start telling them with a megaphone, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Um, and here's what the Bible says, and here's what this says. I just, just encourage you, 
don't bring up the Bible to non-believers because they don't care. It's not their book. They have no knowledge of what's in that book and they don't care. To them, you may as well bring up the Odyssey or uh, some other book because we see it as God's holy word and God's truth. But if you start going to a non-believer and saying, well, God's word says this and you should do that, they're gonna say, who, who cares? It's a book. Okay, they, they, don't, they don't believe what we believe, okay? They don't need to hear God's judgment. In fact, Jesus never once took the sins of a non-believer and put it in their face for him to follow them, for them to follow him. He had the woman at the well. He had the woman caught in adultery. He could have used them as examples and set them up and made them surrender in shame, and he didn't do it. He said, just don't sin anymore. Okay, he met people where they were and connected them with his relationship. Then he implemented the changes in their lives. Okay, so we're to do the same. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He tells us to go tell people what we've seen. Share with them what you've experienced. He doesn't say, go explain the seven different versions of this passage, or go explain how dinosaurs got here, or go explain how many days it actually took to create the world. That wasn't important to him. What was important to him was that his children, his followers, would go into the world and love people and meet them where they are. And that they would then come back, like in this group, and regroup and build strength off each other so they go back out and do it again. What I see, most Christians are huddling among Christians because they want to stay away from those horrible lesbians and homosexuals and all those people. And don't get me wrong, those are abominations and perversions to the Lord. I get it. But they're people, and they've been deceived by Satan, and they're victims of lies, just like we were at one point. And so for us to go out in judgment makes no sense. For us to go out in love makes total sense. So trade places with them, okay? Imagine right now that you don't know Christ. You're living your life, you're doing your own thing. You're pursuing what you wanna pursue. You think you got everything figured out and you uh, think Christians are little crybabies who are too weak to get through life and they have to have a crutch. And you think they all judge you, because they do. Um, and every time you've ever met a Christian, they have always uh, berated you about your lifestyle, who you are, and told you how much better they are than you are, and how they're saved and going to heaven, and you're not, and you're gonna burn in hell, okay? Um, now, trade places. What's it gonna take to get your attention? What's it gonna take to melt down the wall that you've built about those believers? Think about it, what would it take? Relationship, okay, what kind of relationship? Well, you, you can't just dive into, you know what I mean? It has to start somewhere, so a friendly relationship first. And then okay. Something that you can grow in. Okay. Yeah, I'd say one that has, like, respect in the relationship. Okay, do you think people can tell when they're being played? Yeah. I mean, the relationship part is all about... I'm I'm going to... I care about you... Because you have value, you're a person that God created. And I care about you whether you ever come to know Christ or not. I want you to come to know Christ, but that's not going to be dependent on our friendship. Okay? I have friends, I have several friends of mine that are Jewish, and we've been talking about Jesus for 20 years, and they're still like, they're not there. It's okay. They're nice people. I like being around them. We, we have a lot in common. It's fun to talk to them. They know what I believe. I know what they believe. 
Um, they joke with me, I joke with them, but over the years I've watched them get closer, right? And I, and I don't take ownership of their, of their salvation. And that's something I would really encourage you to be careful about. You don't own somebody else's salvation. You've never saved anybody in your life and you never will. People come to God because of the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit does the conviction. The Holy Spirit gives them the faith to believe. The Holy Spirit is the one that goes out ahead of whatever you're doing to make sure that whatever you did didn't totally mess it up, right? So what we have to ask ourselves is, do I really care about other people even if they totally disagree with me? And am I comfortable enough in who I am to be seen with people who disagree with me? Because a lot of times you meet people and one of your thoughts is, what will my friends say about that person if they knew I was talking to them, hanging out with them, right? Now, again, I'll say it, your closest people have to be believers. I'm not telling you to get unequally yoked. I'm not telling you to make your closest friends people who don't know Jesus. But what I am telling you is don't make the Christian huddle your entire world because we're all supposed to be going out. Okay, so and the other thing is we're not supposed to go out with a, with an agenda other than caring for people. I mean, I think what breaks down the wall, at least what broke it down for me, is I finally met somebody who genuinely cared about me. He didn't. I knew he was a Christian. He knew that I had grown up in church and had walked away. But we spent two years together and he just kept building relationship. He kept building trust. He, he didn't try to pound me with. You're going to die and go to hell, even though I knew that's what he believed. Uh, but I finally met somebody. And I remember I called my sister, who's a believer, and I said, I think I've met somebody who's actually a believer in Jesus. I mean, like a real like a believer, like he lives his life based on what Jesus says. He cares about me the way Jesus said to care about me. He's patient with me. He's he understands the struggle I have. He, he It's like. I met somebody who cares about me, okay? And it was a year after that that I surrendered to Christ because he was my messenger. He was the one that developed the relationship enough to tell me, here's where I found Jesus, here's what happened, okay? I think too often we go out into the world armed with our Bible, ready with the Roman road to attack people with a book they don't believe in and a God they don't know and we haven't shown them Jesus because we're not acting like him. Because we're either too ashamed to be next to them, too fearful to be seen with them, and honestly, we think we're better than they are. And if we have that attitude, they pick up on it, okay? Um, I think it's really important to think about where's your circle and what are you trying to accomplish for Christ? Because there are people that you'll be able to reach in your life that I'll never reach. Okay, God will put you in places. If you pray for opportunity, God will put people in front of you who need to hear your story, who need to feel your relational draw. Okay? You guys are all highly relational. And you're, you're, one of the things I love about your generation is you're free to talk. You're free to engage. You're free to make decisions. You, you don't have to like pretend. Uh, you can actually like care about people. Um, you're much more open with that than my generation was. Um, you know, um, it's just very different to watch. Um, and I think 
your generation, as challenging it is from a spiritual standpoint, where it's not, I think, as advanced as ours was, is respecting people's right to disagree without attacking them personally. Um, if we went through enough topics around this circle, we would disagree on a lot of things. Okay? But some of the more common things we might disagree on too. Some of the Christian things we might disagree on. Remember that the, the body of Christ is not expected to be uniform. Right? We're not supposed to be robots saying the same thing over and over. Okay? We're supposed to be unified. Okay? Unity is not uniformity. Okay? We can all be different people. We can all have different ideas. We can all have different interpretations or whatever. As long as the key core concepts stay the same, we can be in unity even though we're not uniform. A lot of people want to try to convince you that to be a believer, you've got to be uniform. You've got to say exactly the right things. You can't ask the questions that you want answers to. You can't have doubt. You can't have uh, concerns about things. Okay, so I think it's really important to think about tonight, what I would ask you to think about is how do you, how are you perceived by the people in your life who are not Christians? And what would they say about you? Okay, not because they're, what they say about you is that important as far as your value. You're already valued. You're a child of the living God. But the people that you know that don't know Christ, do they see you as caring about them? Do they see you as wanting to be their friend even if you never agree with them? Even if they never come to know Christ? It's okay to have friends that are non-believers. It's okay to develop relationships, not marriage, but relationships with people who are non-believers. That's how it all starts. Okay. Think about this. Why did Jesus come to earth? What could he do on earth that he couldn't do in heaven? Down the cross is one thing. Absolutely. Jesus came to earth to show you the Father and to show us that he's a relational God. Okay? He could have just done a brain dump. He could have just said one day, here's what's going to happen. I'm just going to people are going to sleep and I'm just going to dump stuff in their brain and they'll know who I am. But that's not who we worship. He said, I want to go down there. I want to be in relationship with them. I created them for relationship. Their sin separated me, but I'm going to fix that. Okay? I created them in my image because I wanted a relationship with them. I, I, I want to walk with them and teach them and show them this world I've created. I want to, I want to love them and, and, and show them the blessings of doing life my way. I want to put them in this world and, and lead them with my spirit. And instead they rebelled. So he basically says, I want to go back down there and remind them that I'm a relational God. I want to be in relationship with them. I just don't want to be something they bow down to. I want them to know me. I want to be their God. They, want, they can be my people. I want to be in the tabernacle next to them. I want to walk with them. I want to lead them by day and lead them by night. I want to be the spirit that leads them all the rest of their life. I never want to abandon them again. I love them too much. I want to spend eternity with them. That's the God that came to earth. Okay, that's the God that says, look, I'm going to love you so hard that you're going, to, you're going to turn and want to follow me, and we're in relationship. Okay, everything Jesus did was about relationships. He had 12 disciples. He had three that were his closest. He didn't want to do life by himself. He wanted to be in relationship with other people. 
And he wanted to show us that he's not that God like Zeus that's up on a mountain sending out fireballs. He's a relational God who loves us desperately and wants to spend his day with us. And he wants us to go out to the world and tell them the same thing. That there's a God who really loves them. No matter what they've done, no matter where they've gone, there's a God who loves you and I love you too. And you're valuable not because I think you're worth it to me, you're valuable because you're created by God. Okay, you may have given up on yourself, but he hasn't given up on you. You may think you're worthless, but he hasn't decided that. Okay, so in many ways, we carry this banner of relationship into the world. And I don't know about you guys, but I know very few people who surrendered to Christ without seeing Christ in a person first. What's been your personal experience? Because let me just say one more thing. I'm assuming, could be wrong, I think every person uh, under the age of 25 has probably had a crisis of belief. Okay? What I mean by that is there's a point where I think every person who grows up in a Christian home or who grows up with Christ, who hears about Christ, gets to a point where they have to ask, am I doing this because I've been taught my whole life this is what's right? Am I doing this because my parents believed? Or is it really me? Is this about me or not? Okay. And I think everybody, as part of becoming an adult, particularly becoming a spiritual adult, you go through a crisis of belief. Um, because you have to make the commitment yours, not your parents, not what you learned when you grew up. At some point, you got to say, you know what? No, this is what I believe. This is what I'm doing. Okay. And so your crisis of belief has to be... Um, uh, sort of this moment or moments where you just realize this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what's happening in my life. Um, you can't live your relationship with God through somebody else. So when you think about the people in your life, um, uh, what do you guys, where do you guys work? Throw out some workplaces. Airport. Airport. Okay. You can get people up in a plane and get them all kinds of scared for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, okay, so airport. Where else? Y'all work, right? Some people? Hair salon. Hair salon. So you're always cutting hair, styling. People are very talkative of their hairstylists. Yeah. All right. Where else are we working? YMCA. YMCA, great. All right. Hospital. Hospital, great place to meet people that don't know Jesus. All right, so let's say that uh, you're cutting someone's hair. Mm -hmm. And let's imagine that we're all trained to do that. We're not just like being crazy. We're cutting people's hair, okay? How would we begin the process of evangelism? Let's say that. Ask them if they want to go to church around here. Okay, all right. You ask what? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Okay. Okay. Well, um, that's one way of doing it. That was a joke. I know. Uh, um, how would you though? I mean, what would you really, I mean...
one of my clients today um, just told me about some stuff with her granddaughter and just um, asked me just a question. She wasn't Christian, but she asked me a question of why people, um, when they get older, like the, the dying process, why is it so difficult? So it kind of got on the topic, I was like, well, my family's really religious, but this is what we believe. Mm-hmm. Not everybody believes it, but yeah. this is what we understand. Yeah. And just left it open up like that. If okay. she continued the conversation, she asked me what we believe, what religion we're, we are, and I answered that. Um, but if she wanted to continue the conversation, I, like, I do with the clients that I do. Yeah. But um, if they drop it, just I think a lot of, and I think that's an important thing to talk about, is um, most of the time you don't walk up to somebody, tell them about Jesus and have them fall on the ground, confess their sins, ask Jesus to save them, and ask where they can go be baptized. Um, Coming to Christ is a process that occurs over a long time for most people. Um, They may have goosebumps, they may have chills, they may have a moment where they realize that God is in their lives but for the most part most people this is something that's occurring over time um, and you don't know what role you're playing right I mean you know this could be a conversation that God started with them three years ago it could be something that you're the very first person to ever really bring it up um, one of the things I would encourage you to do is um, even though I know that all of us want people to come to Christ learn about the person before you even think about that so a great question for evangelism is, so tell me about yourself. What do you like to do? Where do you like to go? If they're a believer, they'll tell you pretty quickly. They'll put church in there somewhere. Okay. Um, and it's amazing to me. Um, I have probably 20 people in my life right now that I've been talking to for over a year. I haven't even brought God up yet. They don't even know I'm a pastor. Okay. Because uh, as soon as I tell them I'm a pastor, they freak out. But uh, I want to develop a relationship with them. I want to uh, develop trust uh, in them. Um, when I get my hair cut, I purposely don't go to the same person in the place I go to. I rotate because I, I want to meet different people and find out where they are and what they believe about God. And um, um, So I think it's important before you try to tell somebody what they should know, to find out what they do know. One of the biggest complaints a lot of people have is people tell me I should believe in their God and they never ask me what I believe in. You know, they never even care about what I believe in because uh, they really don't care about me. They just care about telling their friends that they saved somebody. Okay, and so I think the question is, um, and it's really simple, but every time I see a patient, okay, and I'm listening to their chest with a stethoscope, I pray. I lay hands on them and I pray. They don't know it. They can't stop me, right? So, uh, That's what I do when I wash their hair. <laughs> yeah, so I lay hands on them and I begin praying. And my prayer is simply, God, what role do you have me in this moment? Why are we here? Uh, what do you want me to do? Um, you just make it obvious what you want me to do and I'll do it, okay? Uh, I don't assume that I know what God wants in that moment. Um, as far as we know, Bringing up God in that moment may be the biggest thing that drives them farther away. We don't know. The Holy Spirit knows. And so I'll pray, God, I'm available. I'm here. I'm willing to say anything, do anything, help anybody. What do you have me do in this moment? Okay. And 
sometimes I'll say something like, um, um, you know, in, in a world where people are hurting, so how are you handling this and where do you find your strength? Okay. Uh, even though they may look like they're the weakest person in the world, where do you find your strength? What, what, what are you, you know, when you're alone with your thoughts, where do they go and how do you process them? Uh, they're reasonable questions for people if they're going through trials, right? Uh, I think the other thing that you can do is, um, this works every time. Uh, you know, I work at a hospital that's secular, so we're not supposed to be really pushing Jesus too hard. Um, so I'm always real careful about how I do it. But uh, Mondays are great evangelism days for me. Because uh, I'll see somebody and I'll go, man, I had an absolutely incredible weekend. How was your weekend? And they'll go, oh, well, uh, I did laundry and I did whatever and I hung out at the house or whatever. And they can't help themselves. The next question is, what was so great about your weekend? Okay. <laughs> Now they've asked me, oh, well, I'm glad you asked. I learned about God in a deeper way today. Let me tell you what I found out, okay? And I can evangelize because they asked. You know, if they hadn't asked, I wouldn't say anything, right? The other thing I'll do is I'll tell patients all the time, I'm going to pray for you. Would you like to join me or not? Okay, in other words, I'm going to be praying for you. I pray for all my patients, but would you like to join me or not? Um... And um, I think the other thing is um, commit to loving people even if they never accept Christ. Okay, Care about the person in front of you because the Holy Spirit put them there. Every day when you go through your life, you're being, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is presenting you with a new person at the checkout thing, at the gas station, at the check, whatever it is. I mean, you're given opportunities to spread seed. And seed is often not the gospel message. We say it is. A lot of times it's just an encouraging word. Wow, that person's always so upbeat. Or that person's always trying to encourage me. That person's always trying to, to speak some goodness into me. Make it your commitment as a follower of Christ to commit to helping people feel better about themselves because they ran into you. That's an incredible way of living your life, okay? Whether they believe in Christ or not, when they ran into you, they were blessed because of it. Okay, in other words, they walked away feeling better about themselves and about life than when you, um, you first met them. That's really all it's about, is caring about them as a person and loving them towards a discussion later, perhaps, of what God wants to do in their lives. Does that make sense? Um, so purposely go out and try to find people who disagree with you and find common ground. Thanks, guys. Find common ground. Good night. Good night. Any questions about that? Thoughts?